We want this humane space where people support one another and there's positive relationships in schools. There's a real community. And we're thinking about learning as a process. We're not thinking about learning as this product or a competitive thing that just is this production of high scores and good grades. I think if we can see that, we'll be able to show up to work the next day. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher, and as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is All of the Above, your home for news and analysis of all the things happening in this wild world of education. Shout out to anybody who is joining us for the very first time. Don't know how you came across our podcast, but I'm happy to have you here. Uh, we hope you appreciate the conversations you hear in this episode. And, and definitely, if you do, go ahead and hit that thumbs up or subscribe or follow or whatever your podcast streaming app is asking you or allowing you to do. Um, Jeff, man, it's been a minute since we've had a full episode. Now, those of us, uh, those of y'all who've been with us for a minute know that when there's a video episode, that means it's a full episode. We got super dope guests in the building and our episodes go up on YouTube, but they are also also available everywhere else you get your podcasts for the the small selection of you that maybe use Spotify you can see the video or listen to the audio through that app and the last time we had a full episode Jeff uh, we had Dr. Jaber in the building and I feel like that was so long ago and tragically the the issues that we're discussing in that episode are still very much ongoing and here we are at the end of the year at the end of 2023 here in December continuing to have conversations about how to make the world a better place, but more specifically our, our classroom. So we have two dope guests that we'll talk about in a moment here, but Jeff, since it is December, and since you are Mr. Super Duper Dope Principal Leader Man, I'm gonna ask you, I, I got a question for you, man. I'm, I'm gonna put you on the spot, and I understand if you don't wanna answer the question because it's one of those um, controversial controversial um, situations when it comes to, to schools, but you know, you are super duper dope principal leader, man, and um, we're not live, so I could edit this out. So my question for you, Jeff, um, the people would like to know, Principal Garrett walks into a teacher's classroom and they have a Christmas tree up for holiday season. You good with that or not? Nah? I know you are a holiday mm. person. I know you're a Christmas person. What's your take on Christmas trees in the classroom or Christmas decorations in the classroom? Yeah, fascinating question, Manuel. And I, um, so I think my first <laughs> uh, answer to that question might be where, where am I uh, a principal? Because I think, honestly, the response that you have should be somewhat different. Uh, depending on where we're talking, Manuel, because if you are in a context where the celebration of Christmas is is the dominant, or in some cases the only, um, you know, holiday of great significance at the end of the year that's that's being celebrated by the community, a Christmas tree is a non-religious, right, a, a secular expression of what has largely become like a commercial and just sort of quality time with family and get your 
you know, your chestnut praline latte, lattes at Starbucks uh, <laughs> type of holiday. Uh, so no, no issue on that from my front. I think the, the real complexities comes in if, if you are teaching in other contexts where the majority of the community perhaps doesn't celebrate Christmas or where there are other holidays at the, you know, at uh, the end of year that are being celebrated by the community. And if what you have is an expression of a Christmas tree and not expressions of the holidays that actually speak to the context that you are in, uh, you know, there could potentially be issues there, right? It also is a token that opens up the potential for conversation about the teacher's identity, their family, their traditions. That could be a relationship building thing with students. So I am not a um, an anti-secular uh, expressions of the holiday season kind of educator, Manuel. Um, and I don't believe that the presence of uh, trees and lights and snow and snowmen and those sorts of things um, violate any uh, separation of church and state, uh, you know, kinds of legal issues uh, in schools. So at least as you described right there. So I'm fine with it, but I think there's a there's like a nuanced where are we and who are the people we're speaking to layer of the conversation that has to be had. Well, that was a very thoughtful, um, articulate <laughs> answer there, Jeff. Um, unfortunately, we don't do we don't do thoughtful or or articulate uh, these days. We needed an immediate immediate defense of Christmas, Jeff. There's a war mm. on Christmas happening, and woke <laughs> Principal Garrett refused to stand firm uh, on behalf of Christmas. This is what's wrong with our public schools. Wow, wow, Jeff. Well, it is the godless communists and uh, the cultural Marxists and the liberals. And the, uh, I don't know, whatever other group we could think of who we don't like uh, for, for whatever arbitrary reason, um, who has waging a war on the family, which of course is what the war on Christmas is all about. And so we need prayer in schools. That's that's actually my answer, Manuel. <laughs> <laughs> there we have it. There we have it. Yes. Nah, that that was that was a great answer, especially since you didn't. Um, I, I gave you zero time to prepare uh, for that particular <laughs> question, which means that's it's what you really mean, and that's why you are a super duper dope principal leader, man, because you're really about this. This ain't some like you know uh, uh, well cultivated uh, answer that you are you know for a question you're anticipating. This is like. You do this, you do this, and I very much appreciate that. And that's what we do here on All the Above. Uh, we, we we give you what you know, what we have learned, and, and and what we know from our experience, and from obviously our scholarship, and from all that we're learning from from our different guests. And we are always always trying to center marginalized perspectives and thinking about folks who aren't always uh, represented in these education conversations here on All the Above. So again, go ahead and hit that subscribe if you appreciate any of these conversations. And of course, if you are um, if you are one of those war on Christmas people who think uh, every everything that you love and believe in is under attack, then um, you know just you might you might just want to go ahead and find another show because here we love and value and humanize um, all sorts of different perspectives. Well, Jeff, you, you know what I have to say to those folks, Manuel. Just real what do you quick, have to say? just uh, just. <laughs> Just can't help myself. I just want to say happy holidays to all of those people, Manuel. Happy holidays. Their ears holidays. are burning, Jeff. Capital Their ears H, are burning. Why can't you just say H, it? Why can't you just okay? say it? This is America. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Jeff, we are here with a full episode, so we're going to have a do now. Go and take a, a look at a couple stories in the world of education that folks might have missed. And also, we have two super dope guests today. So why don't you go ahead and let us know what is on the agenda for today's episode? 
Well, Manuel, uh, today we are going to be having a fascinating conversation with two very special guests. And um, these are two folks who I think many folks out there who follow us on social media or who engage in the kind of uh, education, uh, the artist formerly known as Twitter sphere, um, have probably come across one or both of these folks um, before. And um, our two guests today are going to be Cass and Cornelius Minor of the Minor Collective. Uh, these are two New York City-based, Brooklyn-based educators um, who are uh, doing a lot of important work across the country and in some cases across the world, um, helping to expand conversations about how we create the joyful and just classrooms that our students deserve. Um, and really, you know, grounding that conversation in the work of the teacher in the classroom. And so I think there's, uh, I think this is gonna be a really fascinating conversation. I think it's one that's timely as we are entering this kind of, you know, winter season in schools, things can get a little bit tough uh, sometimes as we approach that holiday break. And um, hopefully we can reconnect with some of our purpose and, and some of the big ideas around joy and justice that drive us in education. So we're going to dig deep today with Cass and Cornelius Minor. Uh, we're going to talk about their books, talk about the good work they're helping to lead and develop in schools. Um, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, folks. You definitely don't want to miss it. All right. Sounds dope. Sounds dope. But up first, folks, of course, we have our do now. Let's take a look at some news, some happenings in the world of education. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's do now. Jeff, how are we going to do the do now today? Well, Manuel, today uh, we're going to do it really my favorite way. I know, you know, we're not supposed to have favorites here on All the Above, Manuel, but I just love uh, this format of our Do Now discussions, and that is uh, the lexicon. Today we're going to dig into some of those key vocabulary, key concepts for this uh, unit of discussion, if you will. All right, all right. Dig into some vocab. Let's, let's, let's pick up that that. Lex, what is the, I'm trying to think on iReady, there's actual little category for Lexile score. Is that it? That might yeah. be it. Y'all mm -hmm. English folks, you know what I'm talking about. Well, Jeff, today's first term is predictable. Mm, predictable. Okay. Um, I mean, I feel like we deal with this term all the time in, in education. We set structures and conditions in school so that behaviors are predictable, right? Kids know what the expectations are. They know what the behaviors of the adults are going to be in response to those expectations. Predictability is one of the most foundational ingredients in establishing a healthy and, and positive school climate, man, well, conditions for learning. So I assume that's where we're going today with predictable. I love that. That, that, that's just soothing. You, you are correct. You are very much correct. And in here, we're talking about, um, we, you know, in, in terms of a, a, a healthy and productive environment. Um, yes, this is this is exactly that, Jeff, about white families leaving um, their neighborhoods to go elsewhere where they can have a healthy and productive classroom environment that is free of, um, in this case, Asian folks. It's kind of wild. We're, we got a wild story here. The story itself is very predictable, um, but I guess the headline is kind of unpredictable, kind of shocking, because I don't think any of us had this on our our uh, racism bingo card for for like 
this year, but here we have it. All right. So this story comes to us by way of the 74 million, thanks to some uh, reporting by Kevin Mankin, who we've uh, leaned on quite a quite a few times in the past. So shout out to Kevin Mankin and all those dope education reporters out there. And he reports that the National Bureau of Economic Research recently published a study of wealthy California suburbs that found that white families drift away from public schools as more Asian students enroll in them. And fears over academic competition may play the biggest role in driving these departures. The researchers analyzed public school enrollment figures from the California Department of Education between 2000 and 2016, which included dem demographic information about families' racial and social economic backgrounds. The results of the author's calculations were unmistakable. With each arrival of an Asian American student in a high-income suburban district, 0.6 white students left. After adjusting their observations for moving patterns of various subgroups, the effect was even greater, such that each Asian student was associated with the departure of 1.5 white students. Study co-author Leah Bostan, um, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, Dr. Bostan, uh, who's an economist at Princeton University, stated, quote, I would have thought that a school district with a growing number of Asian students would have been would be seen as a positive thing since we have these perceptions, particularly based on real data about educational background of Asian parents, but also per partially stereotypes that are expanded beyond the reality that somehow Asian kids would be better prepared, that they would be better peers who would elevate classroom discussion, end quote. The strength of the correlation between Asian entrance and white exit was clear, but the motivation wasn't. The research team considered multiple explanations behind the trend, but found reason to doubt each. However, additional qualitative evidence helped show that the movement was unlikely to have been primarily gener generated by anti-Asian prejudice, but by the perception that the new Asian American pupils were bringing stronger academic performance to the schools that they enrolled in, thereby poten potentially making their white classmates look somewhat worse by comparison. Well, Jeff, somewhat predictable this thing that we have termed over time white flight. Um, shocker that white families would move out as families of color move in. But little twist here with regards to the possibility that this is more about um, the academic performance of those moving in and um, I guess fear of competition or something like that. So Jeff, predictable story here, but kind of with a twist, what are your thoughts about, about this study? Yeah, well, Manuel, I uh, <laughs> I think first and foremost must just say I think that's the perfect lexicon term for today's for today's story because uh, yeah, this is entirely predictable. Um, and also, I'll you know I will stipulate the fact I'm not a psychometrician. I I I'm sure do not have as many uh, degrees and credentialing that would allow me to make statistical arguments in a published paper of this sort. Uh, as the authors do, but I'm calling BS on the idea that, that it's just not motivated by racial animus uh, as well. Um, I do think there's probably some shrewd calculation going on here by, uh, by the white folks at question in this case, and, and this lays 
completely bare the uh, the hypocrisy the you know the emptiness of the the meritocracy myth right that like when confronted with actual meritocracy what the sort of violently oppressive uh, elements of, of white supremacy in our in our culture as it manifests in, in people's behavior what that does is not dive deep into the competition, but rig the game, run away to a different game, consolidate power to lock other folks out, you know, those sorts of things. And this, I think, is just an expression of that that we're seeing. Now, also, let's not get it twisted, right? Like, white folks are comfortable with Asian folks at a certain level of presence, right? Like, come, you know, change your name to Wendy, uh, you know, like, like, be, assimilate, and as long as there's only a few of you, like, cool, we'll uh, just sort of ignore your culture and and assume you're like us and, and laud you for being the model minority and that sort of thing. So we've seen that play out, uh, you know, in our in our society with with some measure of consistency. But when we're actually talking about numbers of Asian Americans uh, growing to the point where their culture cannot be sort of swept under the rug, or what we're talking about where there might be any um, great enough number that folks can start to develop any type of power base, then we're talking about, you know, a power sharing arrangement, which white folks in this country collectively, obviously there's exceptions to this, but collectively speaking, have never been willing to, you know, to at least voluntarily engage in. Uh, and so I think this is just a, you know, 2023 version of the same old predictable story um, that, that we have seen before, Manuel. I do think there's a, there's like a, uh, an ominous warning in this story for the Asian American folks in this country who, uh, who are playing the game right now to kind of seize the reins of whiteness. Um, you know, the folks who are being used in the, in the Supreme Court decisions and other lawsuits to challenge affirmative action and that sort of thing, who are, I think, hoping to sort of expand the definition of whiteness to include them and to, to step upon the, you know, other marginalized communities in this country that, um, you know, that have fought uh, long and hard for legal uh, victories that would break down barriers uh, to opportunity, and they're wanting to reestablish those barriers on built on, you know, the myth of meritocracy. Uh, there's an ominous warning for them in this, which is like, that's not what's going to happen. They're not going to give you the white card at the end and tell you congratulations for being here unless you are willing to do what they have told you they will accept, which is assimilate, change your name, bury your culture, be just like us, you know, don't make us uncomfortable in any ways and absolutely don't challenge the power sharing relationship here. Uh, so I think there's some folks who are like naively, maybe not even naively, just selfishly, um, you know, attempting to play this game in this way. And hopefully we'll come to realize like that ain't how it's going to go. They're going to they're going to do to you what they have done to other communities of color, which is find ways to maintain their power base and, and not share it with you. Um, and so hopefully yep. there might be some wisdom that comes out of this for those folks. I'm not holding my breath, but one can hope. Yeah, this is uh, a tale as old as time. This idea that, oh, if only you adopt American culture, if only you do things our way, if only you assimilate and do all these things, then we'll, we'll be equals. And 
you do that, you, you, you still ain't going to be equals. You're still not going to get, as you said, you're, you're, you're not going to be handed the white card. Um, you, you will never, ever be white, no matter what you do in this nation, unless you actually are, uh, in terms of your heritage, descended from European peoples and can blend into this concept, this idea of whiteness in terms of your phenotypical appearance. But like, you'll never, never be white, no matter how hard you pull on those bootstraps. And, um, and yeah, this is, that's why this story is like, so predictable because we've seen it through time. We've seen it done through time with so many people. This story took me way, uh, right back to the seminar discussion that we had with Dr. Bettina Shea um, about, I don't know how long ago that was. We'll link that under this episode uh, because she, you know, she took us to church that day, man. She really broke down the model minority myth, emphasis on myth and the roots of it and how it has been used to, um, to, to continue to divide and conquer between different groups who are all in the same struggle, the same struggle for freedom, the same struggle for liberation, and how um, Asian folks have been propped up. Not all Asian folks, particular Asian subgroups have been propped up um, as evidence that there is no such thing as systemic racism or anything like that anymore. And then here you have high-performing Asian folks move into the suburbs, the affluent suburbs in California, in, in liberal California, where everybody loves everybody. We don't have racism here and all that stuff that people uh, like to profess. And boom, you have a uh, rapid flight. I mean, it's rapid to me, I mean, these numbers are, are, are pretty significant, I think, um, away from those incoming Asian families, those high-performing affluent Asian families. And yeah, it was interesting to see the researchers insinuate that this isn't about anti-Asian sentiment, this is about fear of competition and this and that, whatever. I mean, that fear of competition itself is is embedded in anti-Asian sentiment because of these stereotypes, these prejudices that that exist, that like all Asians are are high performing, all Asians are so great in school and this and that, this this monolithic vision of Asian folks and and then these families not wanting to be around them in schools. Like that that itself is you can't separate the two. You can't separate the racism from this idea of fear of competition. So um yeah, not not surprising. And I, I do wonder. Long term, now that now that affirmative action and, and race conscious admissions have been struck down, a lot of folks are kind of holding their breath to see what these admission numbers look like for this school year. And I just do wonder how this is going to play out long term, because we do know that the powers that be, that that white supremacy is always going to defend itself one way or another. So I do wonder what the response will be, um, aside from moving away from schools and school districts that have incoming uh, affluent uh, Asian families moving in. I wonder what other response will be there to, to maintain that grip on white supremacy in these spaces and in, in higher education and elsewhere. Because as as Dr. Bettina Shea said on that episode, um, there's only so far that Asian folks are, are allowed to go. So yeah, despite academic performance, despite all these things, you still don't see a lot of Asian representation in leadership roles. Uh, Asians still are paid less than than white counterparts in the work in the workplace. And there's all these other other uh, figures that you could point to that show that like there's only so close to whiteness to power that they'll let anybody get. So yeah, man, this is a um, fascinating story in good old blue liberal california yeah yep uh it, it is a classic story tale as old as time <laughs> just like you said manuel and you know like i said i'm not holding my breath uh but i hope that there's some folks out there who will take from this like a very important lesson which is like the game you are playing is rigged it is not going to give you what you think it will give you at the end uh and so best rethink who your allies are in this struggle. Uh, again, not holding my breath, but I, I'm just hoping that, that, that there might be some, some wisdom to take out of this for folks. Yeah. All right, Jeff. We have time for one more lexicon term. 
What we got? What we got? Yeah. Well, man. Well, our next term is uh, is really it's a technical term. You you might not be familiar with it, man. Well, it is bananas. Ah, yeah. That that highly technical terminology, Jeff. I'm sorry. <laughs> I you know I I don't know the current state of the reading wars, but however I was taught, um, yeah, I, I didn't pick up on you know some of that that technical vocabulary, um, <laughs> something like bananas. So yeah, I'm not. Not quite familiar, Jeff. Yeah, well, man, well, every now and then we come across a story on the, uh, on the show here that's just so crazy that it's hard to think of like a, a you know, a more precise word to describe the craziness <laughs> other yeah. than bananas. Yeah. And I feel like this story qualifies about some stuff that's going on in particular in, in the case of this story, profiling the things happening in the great state of Louisiana. Uh, that are just simply bananas. And uh, Louisiana's not alone in this case, but uh, they're just, the, you know, sort of the, the prime subjects of the article. But we're going we're gonna to dig into this here, Manuel. This is a fascinating one. Uh, the article is titled, <laughs> I'll share with folks, Diplomas for Sale, $465, no classes required inside one of Louisiana's unapproved schools. So, Hashtag bananas. Here we go. Uh, this story is by Sharon uh, Lurie. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Sharon, uh, in the Associated Press. And U.S. public school enrollment fell by more than 1.2 million students in the first couple of years of the pandemic. And many of those students switched to private school um, or um, told their state that they were going to be engaging in homeschooling. Now, unlike public schools, formal homeschooling programs or traditional private schools Nearly 9,000 private schools in Louisiana don't need state approval to grant degrees. Nearly one of those, nearly every one of those unapproved schools was created to serve a single homeschooling family. But some have built buildings, classrooms, teachers, have hired teachers, and even have dozens of students. The students in Louisiana's off-the-grid school system aren't missing but there's no way to tell what kind of education they're actually getting or whether they're getting one at all. Over 21,000 students are enrolled in the state's unapproved schools, nearly double the number from before the pandemic. To supporters of the system, avoiding state oversight is in fact entirely the point. Advocates say Louisiana's unapproved schools are a natural extension of the doctrine of parental rights said the principal and founder of Springfield Preparatory, uh, which is the primary school featured in the article. Uh, her name is Kitty Sibley Morrison. Quote, I think you're working, if, I think you're working the oil field, you're working the McDonald's. All of that is just as valid as what the classroom was. That's my point, And that's why I sleep well at night, because I feel good about the parents having alternatives and raising their children. End quote. She later said, when parents say my child is going um, is ready to go into the real world, I take their word for it. Now, Manuel, uh, I have to admit, I knew that there was wacky stuff kind of like this going on in education. I did not know that we had wacky stuff like this going on in education from quote unquote schools that were issuing quote unquote diplomas <laughs> to kids at the end. I really thought, Manuel, that high school diplomas were 
governed by the state. And so therefore you couldn't actually be given a diploma that had any real weight unless you were sanctioned by the state in some, some capacity. Uh, that appears to not be the case in Louisiana and other places around the country. Maybe this was just a hole in my knowledge about education. But my real question for you is, Manuel, why are you wasting your time at regular school? You should just send your kids out to go work the McDonald's or the oil rig and uh, and then give them a diploma uh, at the end. That seems like uh, the right way to do it in my mind. So, you know, hashtag parental rights. Wouldn't you agree? You know... This actually might be a story where you and I are not in total agreement mm. because as much as this story is bananas, I'll admit like 90% of me, like 90% of me is like, this is absolute trash. This is taking advantage <laughs> of flawed flaws in our system and all these things. 10% of me is like, she kind of has a point. Nowadays, nowadays, in a world that seems increasingly devoid of meaning in an education landscape that seems to be increasingly transactional, hyper-transactional, where it's all about in too many classrooms and too many spaces, where it's all about points and numbers and test score and move on to the next level, where students seem to be increasingly unaware of why any of this seems to matter because everything around them seems to be falling apart. And so many of the lessons that they're receiving in the classrooms simply do not speak to them or who they are or don't help, help them answer the big questions that they have about this world that they are emerging into. In that sort of environment, if we're so transactional, why not just skip all the fluff and just get straight to the transaction? Here's your diploma. Thank you. Go on and good luck into this world. So I'm not in agreement, of course, with this because this is heavy, heavy shenanigans happening here. But like 10% of me maybe is like, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. Um, it. It it does. We did talk about, we did talk about this before, Jeff. We talked about TM Landry, which is one of the schools that's oh, mentioned yeah. here. Mm -hmm. Years ago, that was the school that was um, faking transcripts and doing these very viral videos of students being admitted into all these Ivy Leagues. That was on fully fraudulent documentation with regards to test scores and transcripts and all kinds of stuff. That was one of these unapproved private schools in Louisiana. Um, the, the, the profile, this particular article profiles a school that's, that's not really doing that, but they are pretty much like the lady said, like, hey, if you come to me and you tell me that, you know, your kid's been through some stuff, like, hey, that's education. I'll print out a diploma for you and, you know, for the fee of such and such, and we'll have a whole ceremony and everything. And the kids that were profiled in this story, like, I mean, the school system, just being honest, the school system is not built to really support uh, students who are going through so much of, of what these students in the story are going through. So in, the, in a system that's not built to really view students in a humanizing way and really, like, meet their specific individual needs – Man, I ain't mad at them for going and, and finding a place where they could just print that diploma and go because it didn't sound like any of these students are trying to enroll right now in like in, into LSU or something like that. Like, you know, they, if they go the college route, community college is there that I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Ten percent of me is kind of like I get it. I get it. But yes, it is full shenanigans. She was backdating, <laughs> backdating diplomas and putting stuff on there about it being board approved when it wasn't like that's all shenanigans. I get it. But the overall idea of like. School is without meaning in this meaningless world or a world that seems to be without meaning and teachers perhaps aren't, teachers and school staff aren't maybe doing enough to help 
all students understand the, the meaning behind education and why they should still believe and be hopeful and all that stuff. Like, yeah, cut to the chase, man. Cut me that diploma and let me get up out of here. Let me get out your way and, and we'll be good. So I get it, man. I get it. Yeah. You know, this is why I appreciate doing the show with you, Manuel, because I think my mindset on this article went exclusively down the heavy shenanigans road, as as yeah. you said. And I'm like, first of all, $465 for a diploma, like, this seems like a money grab. This seems like just like pure capitalist nonsense, like come purchase your diploma, like, and on a professional level feels like sort of offensive to the, to the idea that like there is any value in a public education, which of course I, as a right. you know, a biased educator, believe very much that there is, um, and especially in the context of like a, a society that hopes to one day be a democracy. Um, so I was more so looking through it, you know, looking at it through that lens, and also seeing the like the very uh, not small ties between more right wing expressions of Christianity in this case. You know, and yeah. uh, and this like, well, how can we sort of put a state, you know, a, the the veneer of a state sponsored diploma, even though I know technically that's not what was happening, but like the veneer of that on top of this like nutty right wing conservative Christian, quote unquote, education that kids are getting, uh, which to me feels problematic on a whole host of levels. Um, you know, you're, it's a free country. You're free to go, you know, study nutty right-wing Christian things if you want to, but we're not going to, we shouldn't be in the business of allowing that to be communicated as, a, you know, a, a, an education, a proper education. So I was viewing it more through that, you know, through that lens. Um, I do hear you on the, like, the, the disruptive nature of this, right? Like, let's break down the walls of this, you know, things like seat time requirements that, you know, that we've talked about before or the standards themselves. Uh, you know, this does potentially offer like some real open <laughs> possibilities for thinking about like what should an education look like? What should the measures of success be? And on that level, maybe that's the 10% you were thinking about. Like, I'm, I'm right there with you that we absolutely need to think uh, very expansively about changing the measures of success that we use in education and really figuring out how to make education a much more sort of culturally responsive in the in the in the largest sense of that term experience for kids and the communities that we serve uh, instead of this you know just traditional uh, you know purely traditional metrics that I think we just can say blankly are not serving us well. So on that level, I appreciate it as well, Manuel. Thank you for helping me see this story more expansively than I did. Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, when she said the oil fields and McDonald's situation, I, I just didn't see it as being so different from conversations we've had about like what, what does success look like? What does education look like? Like where you have such rigid views of it. And of course the McDonald's and oil fields is like a crude example, but like I imagine a, a freaking young person that's working on an oil rig or something like that. I don't even know what the situation is in Louisiana. I don't know what the age requirement is for anything like that, but like that's something. And like, if the school system was built in such a way to support such a student and um, tap into what they might be learning on in that experience, which uh, just, I just imagine that's a brutal experience. Um, but also just like kind of holistically deal with this person as, as a human, like there, there's something there. And she, did, she didn't claim to have the answer. She didn't claim to be, you know, on the cutting edge of like progressive education by any means, but the whole like, who the hell's the state to tell me what education is 
I don't know, man. There's just a sliver, just a sliver. All right, um, let me be clear. I'm talking like just a sliver of me is is hearing this woman out because I see students who are just the school system is just not meeting their needs at all. So I couldn't be mad at them or their families if they found a way to just get that piece of paper and move on. Like I just can't be mad at that. I don't know. Yeah, I I'm yeah. I, I'll just say, man. Well, at the risk of repeating myself, I feel like that sliver is thin. <laughs> it's very thin sliver, and. You know, to me, it's it is. I'm in a hundred percent agreement about like we should have different ways of being able to find a pathway to success in the realm of education for for students. Uh, and the definition of success needs to be troubled and challenged because uh, right now success is test scores. Success is you know thing things that we know are riddled with problems. Uh, and riddled with equity issues. And so I'm down to examine those things critically, challenge them, create new versions of them, et cetera. Uh, what I'm not thinking is a good idea is just like show up and say you were homeschooled, pay $465 and here's your diploma with a with a ceremony. So like, you know, in my mind, there's, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's different things uh, that we have to, safeguards we would need in place to go down this road. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's a fascinating story. If anybody, if you haven't already read it, check the link down below. Um, it's bananas, man. It's bananas. What can I say? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both stories actually are are bananas. But um, all right, well, folks, that about does it for this do now. We have um, two super dope guests here for the next segment for our seminar, and that's coming up next. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch. Okay, all you gotta do is go to aotashow.com slash support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us. And we are very excited to have with us today two very amazing guests who are gonna help us dig into some really important conversations about how to bring the just and joyful schools that we know our students deserve and need uh, into existence and how to cultivate communities and classrooms that, uh, that help make that reality uh, a truth for the educators and students alike in our nation's schools. We are joined today by Cass and Cornelius Minor. Uh, welcome, Cass and Cornelius, to the show. Thank you, it's so great to be here. We're super excited. It's like reuniting with old friends. 
exactly exactly find a people yes well the feeling is most certainly mutual and folks let me tell you a little bit more about our guests uh cass minor is an inclusive educator and community organizer she has worked in education in numerous capacities including with the university of chicago teachers college the author village and the new york city department of education her pedagogy is centered in joy from the communities that surround her and she is the author of Teaching Fiercely, Spreading Joy and Justice in Our Schools. Cornelius Minor works with teachers, school leaders, and leaders of community-based organizations to support equitable literacy reform. His latest book, We Got This, explores how the work of creating more equitable school spaces is embedded in our everyday choices, specifically in the choice to really listen to kids. Cornelius has been featured in Education Week, Brooklyn Magazine, and Teaching Tolerance Magazine, and has been a featured speaker at conferences across the world. Welcome again, uh, Cass and Cornelius, to all the above, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, minor collective in the building. Now here on, on all the above, first of all, we want to um, very much extend our, our, our gratitude for you to taking time out to be here on all of the above. We know both of you are doing such great work in education and, and I can't imagine how busy you both must be. And on all of the above, some of our guests are folks that we were meeting for the first time and then there's guests that we already know and, and here it's it's one of those in-between situations because I really feel like I know y'all because I've been following y'all online for, for so long and especially in the, the Twitter sphere before before Apartheid Clyde uh, took it over and, 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 and did what he did to it. Um, so, you know, I'm just uh, very much appreciative of both of y'all joining us here. And you both are um, have formed the, the Minor Collective and you do dope work in education. You're both authors, speakers, you've engaged with schools and school communities uh, for quite a while. So we thought we'd start by just asking, what is the Minor Collective? And um, talk to us a little bit about what your journey has been to this work um, together and to this work in schools. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for asking this question. It's it's pretty rare that people ask us about the origins of the Minor Collective, but uh, I'll start like from the very beginning and before we were officially like this entity, you know, on governmental paperwork, um, Corn and I started teaching together way back, like my first year of teaching, like corn was like, you know, the cute guy upstairs. And so we've <laughs> always, we've always been in community together um, in school spaces, like from the very, very beginning of our relationship. And I think the origin of, of us and our work really comes from that communal space where, you know, back in, this is like early 2000s, right? So there was much less oversight on what was happening in schools, you know, social media hadn't really taken off yet, like the iPhone didn't even exist. And so a lot of who we are um, as educators, like came from this really communal and special educational home at, you know, the secondary school in Brooklyn. So I was like to kind of like position ourselves there because that's, the most powerful education we've received as educators and all of the work um, that we're able to do now really comes from that experience. Yeah. Juan, do you want to say and a little bit more about that? Exactly. And we were, you know, as young Brooklyn teachers, we were able to be powerful because one of the things that our school and our school leadership gave us was time and space to think 
and time and space to innovate. Um, and we faced a ton of challenges um, back then, but we had a principal who would convene us and give us time, you know, to, to problem solve and to get together. And so we realized that we are who we are because we were given what Cass calls thought sanctuaries. And so when we think about what the minor collective is now, it's a pursuit designed to give teachers and to give communities what we had growing up. That it is so often that you go to a school community and professional learning is some vendor telling you how to use a program that you purchased off of a website, you know, and, and that's not professional learning, that's sales, right, you know, or you go to professional learning and it's um, a principal parroting back what all the politicians have said we need to do, right, and that's not professional learning, that is organized mandates. And so we think about how we learn professionally and we learned by looking at problems, but not falling in love with them, right? We learned by daydreaming solutions and daydreaming progress. And so really that's what Minor Collective is. It's an opportunity to come together in various ways and to imagine progress and then to realize it. Mm. Yeah, I, I so appreciate that. And I, as a an educator who also uh, grew up in the New York City Department of Ed and you know, spent the first uh, half of my professional career there as a teacher, a coach, and, and an administrator. Um, I, I uh, in recently reading uh, your, your book cast, which kind of opens with, uh, with, I think, some explanation of that phenomenon, it really did uh, resonate with me in terms of the, this kind of period of time where there was a, an environment where a lot of space was intentionally created for educators to think expansively about how to do school in new ways and how to find new ways to kind of create learning environments that were going to uh, disrupt, frankly, a lot of the, the status quo. And I know in many ways that space has been pulled back and you know, or changed in ways that maybe, uh, you know, take away some of the, the romance of it. But uh, it definitely spoke to my my heart and, and kind of my soul as a, uh, as a, a New York City uh, baby educator back in the day and then, uh, you know, a New York City vet after some time as well. So appreciate you uh, speaking to that, uh, Cornelius, as well. Um, for, for our second question, uh, we wanted to dive in a little bit into, uh, into your books. And you both are, are authors, which is something I have just tremendous respect for, you know, folks who are practitioners who take on the, you know, the brilliant work of, of creating a text and offering it as a gift to, to folks in our profession. Um, and I think we'll, we'll start, uh, Cass, with, with your latest book. So your new book uh, called Teaching Fiercely is grounded in this idea of creating a structured generator of radical hope, which was uh, a fascinating phrase that, uh, that stood out to us. Um, and you talk about this as a, a foundation for the work of creating uh, just and more joyful schools for our students, um, complete with a, a beautiful diagram, I might add, uh, which was uh, cool to see. Um, and in that section of the book, you quote Jonathan Lear, who says that radical hope is our best weapon against despair, even when despair seems justifiable. I'm wondering if you could share with us um, what you mean um, by radical hope and why is it necessary for the kind of transformational change that you envision for, for our nation's schools? Absolutely. So first, I'm going to shout out Lei Wen Pham, who is a 
amazing children's book illustrator who did all the illustrations for Teaching Fiercely. So she was the one who I gave her this very boring Microsoft Word diagram and she (laughs) changed it into this beautiful illustration. Hope y'all get a chance to check it out. It's also on our website. But yeah, I mean, Radical Hope um, is this concept that I think is so absolutely necessary for educators to work through um, in our current reality. Right. So, so Jeff and Manuel and Corn, like we're all kind of part of this generation of, of educators who, like you said, Jeff, we're, we're given a lot of intentional time to think and parse out our work in really thoughtful ways that were, um, you know, peppered with our own creativity. And we had a great amount of, you know, like instructional decision making. That simply is not the case for so many teachers in schools today. So, I think about like what makes us stay in this profession. It's it's not even just about like why we're in it. It's like, how do we keep on showing up to work the next day? And this concept really um, was illuminated to me over the pandemic schooling period when we were remote and kids were just like in a disarray and teachers were even more in a disarray and everything was so unpredictable because we were all in this work that none of us had experienced before. And so when I think about Radical Hope, we're really trying to develop a school experience that many of us as kids have never experienced, right? So in my image, I have like these dominant pieces of school culture that are really sort of like this foot on our chest as educators and and, and students, right? Like this idea that school has to be quiet. There's all this surveillance, whether it's teacher evaluations or you know, school disciplinary codes, everything is like working to be more standardized. We have democratic schooling that is turning into more authoritarians, like through all this wild legislation that's rolling through. And I think about what it means to work in that and and how we move towards future goodness. And I think it's possible by reconfiguring the energy that we're working with. I think there's a lot of teacher activism that comes and it's like this whole new thing. And a lot of times it doesn't work because there's nowhere for it to take root in the current school system that already exists. So my radical hope work is really for us to to see future goodness, to be able to work together, to envision like what is it we're working for? We know what we don't want, but we want this humane space where people support one another and there's positive relationships in schools. There's a real community. And we're thinking about learning as a process. We're not thinking about learning as this product or a competitive thing that just is this production of high scores and and good grades. And I think if we can see that, we'll be able to show up to work the next day. Right. And then I have all these, you know, gears in the middle that help us figure out like, what's the path from like this heavily surveilled competitive space to one that is like humane and supportive. It's tough, but it's possible. Mm. I love that. I love that. And um, Cornelius, you're you're actually I I walked into an English teacher's classroom uh, next door to where I teach. And um, she had your book on um, out on a desk. And I was like, I know him. And she's like, you know him? I'm like, well, I don't I don't know him, know him, but I feel like I know him. And, um, you know, your book 2018 uh, came out in 2018. Uh, We got this. Uh, And a lot was going on at that time. That was before 
equity and access was like, you know, popular, uh, popularized in the summer of 2020, uh, at least temporarily popularized. And that was, you know, early in the Trump era and so much was going on and, you know, fake news and alternative facts and all that, but also, you know, Charlottesville and, and there's just a lot going on. So, so your book, we got this equity access and the quest to be who our students need us to be. Um, it was very timely. And, and since then between the pandemic banning of books, all that has happened, all that continues to happen. Got to ask you, man, do we still got this? Do we still got this? And who do our students need us to be now? Because there's just all so much all happening all at once. Yo, that is the question, right? Like, and right now, you know, to be honest, I am in a profound crisis of faith, right? As, as an, as an educator, as a professional, um, as a dad, as a member of a community, you know, we're seeing this world, um, you know, we're seeing folks like, you know, all around, like children <laughs> being murdered, you know, right? Like we're seeing, you know, policies being passed that that ignore whole histories and whole groups of, of folks. And so um, I think about what it means to erase a people, right? And, and one of the ways that you start the work of erasure is you keep people from gathering, right? And so when we think about American chattel slavery, you know, you couldn't read, but you also couldn't gather, right? And that was like huge, you know, especially in cities like New Orleans, you know, you couldn't gather, you certainly couldn't play music, sing, dance. And 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 for me, that signifies that that collective gathering is powerful. And I think one of the things that the pandemic did to us was it literally sheltered us in our apartments, right? So it went from the collective pronoun, we got this, and we heard principals and superintendents encourage people, you got this, right? But when you dilute the we and you make it you, we are profoundly weaker, right? And so we came out of that pandemic, not as we got this, we came out of that pandemic, I got this. You know, my principal told me that that I got this. And so when we all showed up back at school, we weren't a we anymore. We were a collection of me's, right? And so when we ask that question, do we got this? I think we still do, but it involves a real reimagination of the pronouns that we use and the way we move as a result of how we name ourselves, right? Um, and so getting back to, to naming ourselves as we, like people got really good at working in silos. People got really good at putting their heads down and just getting it done because it's that extra step to call somebody. It's that extra step to co-facilitate. It's that extra step to like co-construct. Um, and so, you know, we got this, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, like I really don't. Um, but, but what I do know is I, I do believe in the potential and the power of we, and I do believe that there are communities that are beginning to embrace that we again. But a big part of this contemporary movement in government and policy and curriculum is again about isolating folks. So it's just like buy your curriculum, take the shrink wrap off and teach it by yourself, right? It is teach this book, not that one. It is you can talk about this topic in school, but not in this way, right? And so all of that is is I, the politics of, of I. Um, and I'm really trying to get us back to what, what Fannie Lou Hamer taught us, right? Is the politics of we, right? Yeah. Yeah, that is uh I think there's there's so much profound thought wrapped up in that and that I hadn't necessarily thought of uh Cornelius in that in that way in terms of the the effect of the pandemic on, you know, really uh 
exacerbating in some profound ways the, the kind of uh, isolation uh, that has always plagued our, our profession, or at least in, in modern history has, has plagued our profession and the extent to which the, you know, the pandemic forced that in some ways and, and in which we are called now to kind of rebuild uh, some of the more collective and collaborative nature um, of the work. So very much appreciate you um, you speaking on that. And, and I, I think that maybe is a good segue into our, uh, into our next question, which is, um, Cass, in your, uh, in your new book, uh, you sort of ground uh, the idea of doing social justice work in um, these big ideas of collaborate, build, nurture, and reflect. Um, and I think this this question speaks to to both of you. So um, I'll, I would love to hear both of your thoughts on it. But, um, you know, what do these big ideas look like in school, uh, both maybe sort of philosophically, but also like tactically on the ground? You know, what what does this look like um, in, in practice and how can educators use these ideas to foster the, the kind of. Um, more transformational type of change and, and thinking and understanding of the work in ourselves and with, you know, with our colleagues um, that, we, that we need to create the schools our, our students deserve. Absolutely. You know, it is, it's such a large idea, you know, collaborate, build, nurture, and reflect. All four of those um, pillars are really intense However, you know, Quan really did a great job articulating sort of like the, the despair that so many of us are witnessing, feeling, you know, regardless of the role that you play in school. And so I start this framework with the word collaborate, because I think it is really essential for educators to know, like, this work is not possible to do alone. Like, it just isn't for a lot of different reasons. I mean, A, like, the, just like the daily grind of teaching is super hard. But I also think something that's really missing in a lot of school communities is this idea of, of multiple perspectives, this multiple purview of how things could happen or how they should be done can only really meet people holistically, can only really like attend to the needs of all different kinds of kids and humans if we have all different kinds of humans making decisions for schools. And so you know, when I pose this idea, collaborate, what I'm really talking about is like the answer lies in the room. Like Quan mentioned, like there's a lot of, you know, this commercially created curriculum. And with that comes like these tertiary third party people coming in, into school communities. And then you have a an educator force who's just kind of like forced to wait to be told what to do or how to move. Or when they do make their own decision, I told that's not how it's done. This is what fidelity looks like, right? And so when we move towards a collaborative space, we have to build systems and structures that allow for ritualized collaboration. So when I talk about like, when you say tactical, I think that's a really great word because I think that's often missing from the word collaborate. And so one tactic, for example, when we collaborate with one another is thinking about how our teachers and school leaders working together to develop agendas for something like teacher time, teacher planning time, right? So here in New York City, that's a big deal. I don't know if it's similar across the rest of the nation, but for 65 minutes, every single Monday afternoon, like teachers get to come together, right? So how are we using that time together? And how are we deciding what that looks like? And then how you spent, like how you're actually engaging with one another is like another layer of collaboration, right? We know that historically there are many people in school spaces that are just not 
privilege. They're not given the same kind of power as other folks. So I'm also doing a lot of that work when I think about coaching into collaboration. Like we're really working to not just give everybody a seat at the table, but we're really giving everybody a microphone at the table as well. That's just one pillar. I, I can talk a lot about <laughs> collaboration, but what, what do you want to add on to collaboration before we move to the next part? Um, you know, and I think a lot of um, my joy comes from the nurture part of our identity, um, really thinking about how we hold school communities in care. Um, and that's probably my favorite part of working every day is that when I am in a school community working alongside children and teachers and caregivers, um, of course, I am thinking about curriculum. Of course, I am thinking about methodology, but I'm also thinking about humanity and, and all of the different ways that we see, affirm and support one another. And so just seeing that um, as a part of Cass's book was probably my favorite thing. It was just like such a thrill um, to read through those sections of, of teaching fiercely where like nurturing was part of the work. Well, there's a real like, um, one of the things I attempt to do in this book is to give like some real clarified strategies for what this looks like in practice, right? So collaborate, like I, I think I really spell it out. It's like to engage in meaningful acts of listening you know, we're positioning ourselves alongside one another. So like, we're really assuming like not one person has powers just because they're like the principal of the school. And we're thinking about putting out more offerings to people. This this word non-negotiable that makes sense in some cases, but in many cases it doesn't. So where is choice for educators in, in their learning and how are we honoring that process? So collaboration is, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, but, you know, to Corn's point, nurturing is also something that I think largely has gone by the wayside in educator spaces. Um, you know, I think about how are we cultivating space for educators to work out issues that they care about in their classrooms? Like, I remember one time I witnessed the school, like the school-wide inquiry where teachers were assigned students they were going to be researching across the year based on test scores, like, you know, the level students who scored a level two were considered like high leverage kids. And it was just sort of like this maniacal experience because there was no investment for like teachers. Yes. Like cared about kids literacy, but to, to study it in a, in a dictated way really removes the passion and heart from what it means to be a researcher and to be a learner. And so nurturing is, yes, like making sure teachers, A, get bio breaks and get to drink water and take a lunch, but it's also like nurturing their, their learning spirit. And that is something that has been really like, it's like a desert in the land of educators. And so I am really leaning into this idea that educators are the freaking learners, man. Like they love to learn. <laughs> Like a have opportunities to learn in school. Like, what are we doing, right? So, nurturing is a it's a lot. It's care, and it's it's care in a multi dimensional sort of way. Yeah, I, I so <laughs> so much here. It's it's hard to uh, just choose one direction that my brain is going right now. But I uh, something that's coming to mind for me, and, and I would love to hear from both of you on this. And maybe Cornelius, I'll, I'll ask you to start because I know you've done uh, some work 
uh, here in Los Angeles, where Manuel and I both, uh, you know, live and work, and also in New York and other places as well. Um, but we, so we sort of occupy these spaces in America and in the education landscape that I think a lot of people uh, think of as like, you know, maybe safe progressive bubbles, right? Where some of the just dystopian kinds of things that are in the news or dominating headlines about education that involve book bans and, you know, uh, videos of Frederick Douglass talking about how, you know, slavery wasn't that bad or whatever, uh, you know, these sorts mm -hmm. of things are happening all around us, but maybe we are protected in some way, you know, from those sorts of things. And I think Manuel and I have spent a lot of time on the show sort of troubling that notion that, mm -hmm. uh, that we are protected and also that, you know, the fact that this problem might be more acute elsewhere doesn't mean that it's not our immediate problem in our context as well. And, and I think some of the things that you both have written about and are speaking about here are similar in, in that there is a radical uh, nature to the idea of, of, you know, teachers collaborating and um, working together to create humanizing spaces for young people. Um, that's a more radical idea than it might seem. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if, if you all could share some of your thoughts about um, sort of how you engage with educators uh, across the country and in your context about challenges that they're experiencing yeah. on this front and and on like folks who might be more quote unquote behind enemy lines on these on these kinds of issues <laughs> like what what is their work and and what advice might you offer to them Wow well some of my favorite work um, is is still work in classrooms right and and so um, about 80% of my work if I am not writing I'm in a classroom um, and so I'm I still get up go to school every day put on my uniform um, you know and I'm I'm there and and but like the beauty of the work now and the way I think about engagement um, is that I work shoulder to shoulder with teachers. And so when a school like invites me in or when a teacher invites me in or a group of parents or community members or caregivers invites me in, um, I always, always want time with children. And so my inquiry always starts with what young folks need. And, and, I, and I try within 45 minutes of me being in the building to hear it directly from the mouths of young folks. So I will teach a class, get kids to generate some thinking, some questions. And then when kids put at the center table what they need, then we as adults get to figure out how we move in order to deliver that thing. And so that's been my methodology for more than a decade um, is really thinking in big, and you know, it's teacher action research, it's inquiry, right? Like it's, it's really figuring out what do we want for children and if we have not consulted the children, then we're doing it wrong. Um, so it's just, it's a really simple uh, metric and, and teacher action research has been around for a long time. But, but even before I knew it as teacher action research, that was the work of our foremothers in the American civil rights movement, right? Folks going to communities, knocking on doors, being like, what y'all need? And then this, how we gonna go to the church and organize to make sure that thing happens, or this, how we gonna go to city hall and organize to make sure that thing happens, right? And so it's the idea of asking the question and then doing the kind of powerful imaginative work um, to, to ensure that we can pursue not the answer, um, but so that we can pursue many different answers, right? You know, that, you know, and I think people forget that part of the work is trial and error, right? That, that, that when we think about all of our foremothers and forefathers, they didn't, 
you know, Malcolm X wasn't Malcolm X overnight, right? You know, like Sojourner Truth wasn't Sojourner Truth overnight. Their activism was trial and error and reflection and 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 rededication to the cause, right? And so I think about like trial and error and how sometimes I'm defeated by the mistakes that I make. And sometimes I'm really sad. Sometimes reflection goes slow, but then I rededicate myself and I try again. And so that's what the work looks like every day. That there's this, I think one of the greatest lies the devil ever told is that activism is sexy. Um, <laughs> and, and that it ain't, right? Like it is a lot of me teaching a vocabulary lesson, getting it a little bit wrong. And then going home and crying about it for a little bit and reflecting and being like, all right, how are we going to get this done tomorrow? Um, kind of work. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like to, you know, to your point, Jeff Emanuel, like New York City is definitely not as like blue as people think it is. Right. Like I, I would say like the primary challenges that educators in New York City are experiencing mirror what the rest of the country is experiences as well. And that is people are not comfortable talking about systemic racism and the ways in which the legacy of systemic racism impacts students in our schools today. That is still a very uncomfortable notion. And there's a lot of book clubs. There's a lot of, you know, equity committees. But when push comes to shove and you're trying to do the work that Corn is talking about in classroom spaces where we're really thinking about how kids are receiving information and processing learning, it becomes a whole different conversation. And a lot of people show a lot of resistance. You know, there's a lot of deservedness that's very much ingrained in the bedrock of schools in New York City. Another element that's a huge challenge is still this idea of, of high stakes testing. People are really committed to investing whatever they can in their child's education to produce scores that allow them to, you know, show a specific kind of merit so that they, they can then get into, you know, whatever Ivy League institution they desire. And so there is this challenge. I say that's a challenge because it removes the onus of like the, the real learning experience for all of the other kids in the school community, because there's so much focus put on this competitive nature of testing, whether it be, you know, um, the New York State ELA and math exam, whether it be the SAT. Um, and, and to an extent, like that carries over into other aspects as well. And so the challenge becomes for folks who are really married to the needs of children, to the presentation of youth in classrooms across the diaspora of New York City schools, when we're really tending to their learning needs, that means we might not be paying as close attention to whatever it takes to get a really high score on the test. And there is a lot of tension in that conversation. And that is connected to the systemic racism that people really don't want to engage with. And so to Korn's point, the way that we have navigated those challenges with educators is, again, leaning on that framework. We are building communities of resistance when we are re-engaging with our teacher researcher selves to solve the problems that kids are experiencing in classroom spaces. And when we're able to do that and we're able to do it well, there's not a lot of pushback because kids are having a great time in class. And they usually do better in literacy and math when they're having a better time learning with their teacher in the classroom. So yeah, we have to wield a lot of strategy. We have to build a lot 
um, and spend a lot of time with people to gain the trust in order for them to engage in this level of, you know, somewhat subversive research. Um, but it's been a great opportunity. And I think that it has equipped people to face the kinds of challenges that are becoming greater and greater with each day of school. Boom. I love that. <laughs> Um, I'm shocked. I'm shocked to hear that students actually end up doing better uh, with regards to math and literacy and all that. Um, shocker that they actually do better when we actually treat them like humans and do the good, the good justice work uh, right. that they deserve. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much. I mean, this is um, I, I don't know if this was was made clear to you, but uh, this is only your first appearance on all of the above. You are going to be back at some point, hopefully, because uh, we would love to have you back either together or individually to learn more about your work because there's so much dopeness there, uh, so much so much power in what you've shared today and uh, so much more out there. So like, how could folks, folks who uh, maybe are listening or watching and uh, this is their first time um, meeting you both, how, how could folks find you? Sure. I mean, we have a very... Um Awesome website, cassandcorn.com, K-A-S-S and corn.com. Uh, we both have, you know, some really robust books that we'd love for you to check out. Teaching Fiercely is available everywhere, you know, Amazon, all those places, as is We Got This. And I'm also excited to announce that um, We Got This is going to be available. Or, sorry, Teaching Fiercely is going to be available via audiobook. Um, uh, anywhere you can buy audiobooks, you know, Apple, Google, all those spaces on December 26th. So check it out. We love to stay connected. As Manuel said, we used to be on that place called X. We're not as active anymore, but um, Instagram is also a place that you can find us. Uh, yeah. And the beautiful part about our work is you can probably find us in your city. You know, we do <laughs> a lot of traveling and speaking around the world. Um, and so we we like to kind of like keep people updated on where we are, how we show up. Um, and a lot of that is in community and classroom spaces. So I spend a lot of time in coffee shops, church basements, hotel lobbies and classrooms, right? Working with young folks and the people who love them. And so, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, we hate to, to put a pin in it there, but uh, we, we will do so for now. And as Manuel said, uh, this is just appearance number one uh, for you on the show. We, we are grateful that you were here with us today and look forward already uh, to having you back at some point in the future. Uh, but folks, um, our guest today, uh, Cass and Cornelius Minor of the Minor Collective, uh, thanks so much for joining us here on All the Above today. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. It's so exciting to be here. Yes. Absolutely. All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us, but stick around. Next up is our class dismissed. All right, folks, now it's time for class dismissed, where we like to end each episode with uh, shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Jeff, who do we have for today? Well, man, well, today we have a very special shout out. It's really kind of a collective shout out to a group of educators in a certain part of the world who I think it's fair to say are doing a heroic job in probably the most tough and challenging and horrific conditions imaginable. 
that being the folks in Gaza, the educators in Gaza who are continuing to bring school to the children uh, of Palestine. Um, this is really kind of an amalgamation of, uh, of information from different stories, but one in particular that we're going to shout out um, features a young man named uh, Tarek El Anabi, who's a 25-year-old teacher at a UN school in Gaza City that was displaced uh, because of the bombardment. He, like many educators there, are continuing to run school for young people. He's teaching outdoors with chalk and slate that they've been able to compile uh, from different sources, different donations and that sort of thing. Um, teaching 40 students in the morning, 40 students in the afternoon, really just trying to make sure that as many young people as possible are getting opportunities to learn and grow and develop with access to, to formal education um, that they had prior to the bombardment. Um, and Anabi uh, was quoted in this article uh, as saying that teaching English at a time of war is in, in itself an act of defiance. First, he said, we give the children their smile back and let them return to their lessons. Then we help them to speak English so they can be heard in the world. Now, folks might not know that, um, might not know what is happening uh, with the schools in Gaza in particular. And uh, according to this article, which appeared in France24.com, um, and as of November 30th, 266 schools uh, had experienced partial destruction in Gaza, while 67 have been rendered completely unusable. Um, so this has obviously been a devastating, uh, you know, acts of, of war and genocide and uh, ethnic cleansing uh, that educators and students alike are having to grapple with there. But it is incredibly inspiring to see educators like uh, Tarek El Anabi who are continuing to bring education, to bring light and learning to the young people of Palestine who so desperately need and, and deserve it. So shout out to all of you uh, educators in Palestine. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And seeing the images, the photos in this story, which we'll link below, we'll link the story below, of course, um, just seeing these kids gathered uh, together in their circle with their with their teacher there with their little uh, chalkboard and, and getting this lesson with a world of destruction behind them in the background. It's just um, very, very touching. It's just what is what is this world that we are in where hundreds of schools are been bombed or damaged and destroyed. Um, it's just, it's very heartbreaking, of course, the young people trying to learn who had nothing to do with none of this, and they're just kids, man, they're just kids. So shout out to all the formal educators like Anabi, who are who are teachers before and are still continuing to, to teach and give lessons and offer lessons now, but also those informal educators, those aunties, those uncles, those other family members and neighbors who are um, trying to offer some lessons, some education to the young people as they continue to duck and dodge and flee from the onslaught of, of bombs and, and, and all the destruction. So um, shout out to everybody trying to help these young people still learn and still grow in the midst of just uh, unimaginable circumstances. So absolutely. And um, folks, that about does it for this here episode of All of the Above. And if you're still listening and you haven't yet subscribed, like now would be a great time to do that. Um, but a lot of you are, are still listening and you've already subscribed. So you're like, yo, I already subscribed. I already hit the thumbs up or whatever. So I'm good. Um, 
ask yourself or, or consider whether or not you've written a review because um, we definitely, definitely um, need those. those. Those help out a lot. And some of you are in the middle of your drive or you're running and, and you can't type right now. You can't write a review. I get it. I get it. Just put a little, little, little nugget, a little reminder in, in your head to um, consider doing that when you have a moment, when you're done driving or running or, or whatever you might be doing, uh, to just throw in a little review. It could be real brief. It could be like, yo, great podcast. Um, I love hearing their stories about education. It could be brief like that, um, but it goes a long way into helping our show um, show up in people's algorithms and all that good stuff. So very much appreciate all of y'all. We hope everybody has a fantastic week ahead. And uh, remember, we love y'all and we'll see you next time.